And you may take your Bibles and have a seat, please. This morning we begin a new series in the book of Ruth. Ruth, a story of love and redemption. And we're going to go through it very slow. I mean, as a matter of fact, I... Uh, when I plan a series, I have a tendency to look at how different people preach it and to see how they kind of outline it to see if I'm thinking right or if I'm crazy about how I'm trying to look at the book. Um, and uh, the book of Ruth is usually done in four sermons or so. We're going to be doing this for at least until Christmas. So we're going to slow down and really dig into it and think about it and, and hopefully it'll really impact our hearts and lives uh, so today, even though it says in your bulletin it's Ruth 1, 1 through 2, we're going to slow down and just do verse 1, I decided, as I was looking at it this week. So I figured that the way, the way my mind works is I was looking at verse 1 and 2, and then I'm like, I'm not really talking about anything in 2, so let's just focus on 1. So we'll look at that just in a, in a few moments here. My family loves, absolutely loves Tim Hawkins. Anybody here a Tim Hawkins fan? I'm just curious. All right. Some of you folks are. Tim Hawkins... Uh, one of my favorite bits by him, and actually the first time I heard it, I was at one of the churches here in Dallas listening to it, and I almost wet my pants. And I'm going to tell it, but I'm not going to tell it as good as he does, so you'll have to go online to really get the full impact of it, okay? But he does this bit called, That's the Worst. That's the Worst. And he talks about how we use superlatives a lot, like we'll say stuff like, This is the best! And, you know, or we'll say, like, that's amazing, or this is unbelievable. And really, you know, he's talking about, he goes, I was, eating, I was with a friend of mine, and we're eating deer sausage. He goes, this deer sausage is unbelievable. And he goes, really? It's deer sausage. If an eagle flew down and delivered that deer sausage into your lap, now that's unbelievable. <laughs> but not just deer sausage. So he tells a story of his daughter. And his daughter, she wants to go to the mall. So the parents, he and his wife are going to drop her off at the mall. And as they get there, she's sitting in the back and she goes, Oh, Daddy, oh, Mommy, I can't believe it. My friends, my friends, my friends aren't here yet. Well, I, I want to go shopping. I have to wait on my friends. And he goes, My wife looked at her and said, Honey, that's the worst. Really? Is that really the worst? You mean being lost in the mountains, stuck, you know, in the wilderness is not the worst? Uh, being uh, in an ocean surrounded by sharks is not the worst. Do you remember those Chilean miners several years ago, 700 meters down for 69 days? Can you imagine what they would be thinking? Oh, things are bad here, man. You know, things are really bad. We got no food. We got no water. <coughs> we got no air. We may not make it. Through the day. This is bad. But you know, I can think of one thing that could be worse. You know? You know when you're at the mall? And you're with your parents? And your friends are not there and you want to shop and you have to wait? This is bad. But that is the worst. And what's funny about that yesterday is, is that Silas and I are sitting in a, in a library between ball games, and he looks at me, and he literally says, Dad, this is the worst. <laughs> and I wanted to go, really? <laughs> really? 
We could be sitting out in the hot sun watching those games, but we're resting here in the library preparing for the next. We might use that phrase or any other phrase, but specifically, that is the worst. Maybe we may over-exaggerate using that. But my friends, that cannot be said about the times of the context of the book of Ruth. It truly and really was one of the worst times in the history of Israel. So open your Bible with me. We're going to look at Ruth 1. 1, 1. Hear the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a a famine in the land. And the man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we know that you are good and that you are faithful even in the darkest times. We'll see that here this morning. So, Father, we ask that you would help us in our hearts to always understand your word. Always be growing in understanding of your word as it reveals you. That we may live in hope. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. The worst. The worst. It was the worst of times. Our times can be very bleak as well, can't they? Uh, We can look at uh, the newspaper. We can look around us and the various things that are going on and we see it, don't we? Uh, Just this week I was reading headlines uh, in like Christian news organizations and, and here's some of them, just a few of them that I found very interesting. Uh, the first one was this, Pakistani pastors paid by sex traffickers to find brides for Chinese men of more poor congregations. That just sounds weird and creepy to me, you know? How about this one, China offers thousands of dollars to anyone who will report Christians or illegal churches to the government. Uh, How about this? Kentucky Baptist, this past month, took a stand against the governor in his stand against abortion. Uh, Not only that, here in Texas, just in July, a dozen interfaith clergy gathered uh, for a blessing ceremony at a reopened abortion clinic to demonstrate that there's more than one way for Christians to view the abortion debate. Churches are impacted by culture. They're impacted by pluralism, syncretism, worldly sexual ethics, media, and many, many other issues of the day. As we consider the first verse in the book of Ruth, we can see that there is truly, truly nothing new under the sun. Just as in our day, so it was in their day. So the question is, How can we live through such times? Uh, Today, uh, we're going to look at two big picture thoughts concerning this passage and really step back. We're going to look at one thought about the passage and step back and look at the book as a whole just for a few moments. And we're going to look at two points here. The essence of bad times and in the hope that we have in dark times. The essence of bad times and the hope we have in in dark times. So in verse 1, the essence of bad times in verse 1, again, it says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. 
So a man of Bethlehem in Judea went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The book sets out for us a context. It gives us a historical event. There's this famine in the land. It sets out some geography. It's in Bethlehem of Judah, uh, in Moab as well. In the beginning, the characters of the story are revealed just here in the first verse, and it's a family of four at this point. The chronological setting of the book is set in the days when the judges ruled. So I want you to think about this for a moment. First of all, and the problem of the times and what it communicates to anyone throughout history who reads this story. What is it communicating there in that first verse? Well, the times of the judges were a dark, dark time for the nation of Israel. If you remember the chronological history of the people of Israel, at the end of the book of Genesis... After God has made the covenant with Abraham and Abraham's family, his posterity, uh, we find God's people saved through Abraham's grandson, Joseph, living in the land of Goshen in Egypt. However, when we turn the pages of the Bible from the book of Genesis to Exodus, we read that the Pharaoh of, of the time of, of the Exodus had forgotten about Joseph. And so we find these people in slavery. So in the book of Exodus, we know if we have read the Bible that God delivered the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. But due to their unbelief, and that's what's interesting. I mean, can you imagine you're saved out of Egypt? You're, you're take, you've seen these plagues. You cross the Red Sea. This Red Sea parts, and yet you still struggle to believe. It seems ludicrous to us, but it's true in the story. It's what happened. And so the, the first generation of Israelites failed to enter the promised land. They wandered in the desert for 40 years. So here comes the second um, generation. And they entered the promised land under the leadership of Joseph. And things went reasonably well as God's people divided the land and got established into their new communities. Now, here's a point of contention that some people have that look at God and kind of make a judgment. But it's important to remember that when, when, when God told his people to go into that land and to conquer them and to utterly destroy those people, it's not like he's just tackling a bunch of innocent people. Oh my goodness, these people are innocent. He had said long before in the book of Genesis that those people were in sin and he was going to punish them. So Israel's even going into the land was a punishment to the people who lived there. So Scripture would remind us again that God is the perfect judge. He is perfect. We're not, but He is. And so His punishment here is just and right. So all this is going on, and so after Joshua dies, things begin to fall apart. They didn't obey God, and they didn't do what He said. They made choices about the people that they would kill. Why not enslave them instead? You know, why not do this? Why not do that? Uh, why not keep the bet? Why not? I mean, they just totally disobey God and His commands. And so what happened is, is that these people not only began to, uh, to kind of harass God's people, but, but they also began to, uh, the people of God began to be influenced by those people. 
And so they went through these repetitive cycles of, and this is what they did. They would run into evil. They would do evil things. They would, they would get involved in some evil way. Um, there would be a judgment of God uh, from the people surrounding them. The people would begin to, to harass them. And so the people of God would cry out and say, Lord, please have mercy on us. And so God would rescue them. He would send a judge. And the judge would rescue them. Well, when that judge died, guess what would happen? They would go through that same cycle again. I'm going to run into evil. Oh, no, these people are harassing us. God, save us. Here comes a judge. But the issue is, as you read through the book of Judges, is it does this downward spiral. Even the judges themselves, as you kind of get toward the end of the book of Judges, are just kind of creepy people. But God's still using them. They're, they're embraced in syncretism and the worship of other gods. I mean, it's, when you read the book, there's so many horrible things that happen in there. If you were to put headlines on it, maybe one of them you would remember was, you know, mob of men attack house, woman dead, things like that. It's just horrible. Under those dark times of a loose tribal confederation of people, caught in a cycle of, and what the theme of judges is, they were doing what was right in their own eyes. In that whole theme, we're introduced to a wonderful story of love and redemption in the book of Ruth. However, we must not miss the fact that this is not, as Ian Dugan says, Merely a date stamp to locate a moment in history in which the characters lived. Rather, it is a theological description of the character of the times in which these events take place. In the time period, it's, again, it's just more sobering as you read the distressing, disastrous, sin-laden darkness of the times in which the disrespect for human life in general and for God in near total ruled the days. It was dark times for God's people. So the question is, how can we as God's people learn from this book and, and, and and understand the times and live in them. How can we do that? Another question we might ask is, is how in the world could God's people who are called out and intended to be a holy nation get into this gross and perilous pattern? One author puts it this way, what began as a com uh, complacency and tolerance became apostasy. Uh, Ralph Davis, uh, Ralph De Dale Ralph Davis calls it a generation of degeneration. How did this happen? What happened? And how can we live? Well, what happened is this. The simple answer is, and it, it's just there in the text, it's very simply this. They disobey God. They disobey God. They did not do what He told them to do. They allowed people around them that they were supposed to judge in, by death. And again, remember what I said, God was using this. God is the perfect judge. They allowed these people to live. And these people not only harassed them by their godliness, but influenced them as well. They simply did not heed the charge that Joseph gave to them. 
He had told them, follow the Lord, hold fast to the law. In, in, in Joshua 23 and 24, take some time today and read those two chapters. He's telling them, hold on tight to the Lord. Do what is right. And they did. Now, a few moments ago, we, we read some disturbing headlines concerning the church here and in other parts of the world. Well, what other news might you put in the headline of God's people moving toward a perilous turning from Him in today's culture? And when I say today's culture, I mean specifically the church and the culture, okay? So understand, I mean the church in the culture. What other headlines could you use? What about on a personal level? Where might your heart be tempted to turn uh, away from God and to run into some sort of temptation, sin, and evil? Do we see the danger that we truly face? We, you know, again, last week's sermon is still ringing through my head as I'm thinking about this. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. How important it is that we truly think about the Word of God in our lives as we live before Him in this world. There is always a danger that we must be aware of. Because why? Temptation and sin abounds. And so, here we are. And, in, and, and until the Lord returns, this is where we are. But there is a, a remedy to the problem that they were facing here that the Lord would have us to look at and to consider. Okay? So we, this problem is that they had just simply moved away from the Lord. They're not listening to Him. He offers us a remedy. The remedy for the times, and this remedy comes out of grace, is now, and it was then, to turn to God's Word and obey. It's out of grace. You go to the book of Exodus, and you see the Ten Commandments listed for you there, and how does it begin? It begins by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Now, Paul will tell you in the New Testament that the law is, is bad. It's bad when it, when it is meant to be laid out that that's how we earn salvation. If we are trying to earn salvation by the law, Paul says the law is bad. But if we, out of grace, are seeing it as a grace from the Lord that we are to live out His kingdom values, then it is a grace. So the Lord gave it to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, he gives it to us in the New Testament. We still have the Old Testament. We still look back upon it. But, the, but then Jesus clarifies it even more and says, you want to know how deep and dark your heart is? Look there. Look there and compare it to God's Word. So this past Thursday, as, as we were studying uh, on Thursday morning in our study, uh, uh, we read through a, a book, or we're reading through a book called Maturity by Sinclair Ferguson. And I thought that when we had that discussion, I'm like, this is the perfect focus for us as we think about God's Word and keeping our minds and hearts on God's Word. 
Uh, Sinclair Ferguson says that if we understand the fact that abiding in Christ, uh, living in union with Him, drawing all our spiritual resources from Him, involves allowing His Word to abide in us, that is to fill our minds and affections and dominate our lives, then it will save us from any mystical notions of what it looks like to be in Christ. What he says is this, this is fellowship with Him, and it is marked by resolute, Spirit-enabled obedience to God's Word. A willing submission of heart, soul, mind, and strength to the Lord and His revealed will. And so what he's saying and what he does is he does a study of John chapter 15 in the Upper Room Discourse where Jesus talks about if you abide in me and I abide in you. And he ties those in because Jesus does to the Word of God. I will love you. I will care for you. Hold on tight to my word. Hold on tight to me. It's not some myst. He's trying to point out, it's not some mystical experience. It's a, what does the word tell me and how am I to live? How am I to live? And it's all by grace. It's by grace. And so as, as, we, as he unpacks this, he says, uh, first of all, let the Word be absorbed by your mind by feeding on it. Let the Word of God be absorbed by your mind by feeding on it. You know, the issue is, is that the, there's no substitute for the dog's daily discipline of digging into the Word through meditative study. Now, to be sure, we at the church, we're doing this thing where the last couple of years we've read through the Word of God in a year. But we know that we're always catching up, that we're always, you know, behind. I'm behind. I'm telling you right now. I was thinking about this morning. I'm so far behind. I don't know how far I'm behind because I just haven't looked at it in about a week and a half. But I'll dig in there and I'll go through it. But that's not what I'm talking about here. I think that that should go on because as some pastors and theologians have said, as you begin to do that, you begin to see connections in the Word of God that you didn't see before. But I also think at the same time that we should slow down. It could be that you take vigorous notes of the sermon and then you go back and you read back through the Word and you say, is Patrick really preaching this right? Uh, what are some things that Patrick didn't talk about in this passage? Because I can't talk about everything. Or it may be that you have a devotional book that you listen to or, or read or, or whatever. Listen to as you're driving. That's why I'm thinking that. But also read whatever the case may be. But, but you dig in deep and you take time to meditatively think about it, to study it, to understand it, and then let it be absorbed in your mind. The second thing he says is, is that we need to learn to read the Scripture properly. The Bible is not a book of Christian magic. It is a book that we are to correctly handle. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, correctly, learn how to correctly handle the truth. So what we do is, is we understand genre. We understand context. What is the Bible really saying versus what I feel like it communicates? 
We talked about this at a Bible study the other morning. Perhaps you've, you've memorized a Bible verse, and in your heart and mind you're thinking, this is what this teaches. And then when you pull back sometime, either in a sermon or either in a, in a study that you're doing, and you see the text, and you look at it, and you think about it, and in that text you realize, well, that's not really how that passage is unfolding there. It's not really what that passage is saying. I've been thinking about this all wrong. Sinclair Ferguson would say, that's exactly right. We need to understand what the Bible was saying. What was it trying to communicate in the time that it was written? What was it saying to the people of God at that time? And then how does that apply now to me? The book of Ruth is written in a certain time period. We're going to see that all over the place as we go through it. So we are called to learn to read the Scripture properly. The third thing he says is this. Let the word influence your will. Now, this is important. And to be honest with you, I think it's maybe the most important thing that we're going to see here. He says, alongside a confused approach for reading God's word, our chief weakness with respect to letting Christ's word indwell is a failure to bow our wills in obedience. I just think that's important. I think it it was probably Israel's problem. And it it may be part of our problem as a church culture today in the world. Will we obey what the Word says? You know, today, everybody, you know, since the German critics, everybody's been criticizing the Word and going into it. There's some good things that come out of that, but there's some bad things as well. But when you continue on that path, and you're continually questioning God, you begin to question, well, is it really true what God says about human sexuality? Is it really true what God says about this topic, about that topic? Is it really true? And if you think about it, is that not what Satan was doing in the garden? So we are called to to consider it, to dive into it, to have it infiltrate our minds and our hearts and then say, yes, Lord, this is what you've said. This is what you've said. And not make excuses as God's people. It's difficult. It's hard. It takes death to ourself, doesn't it? But that's where we'll find life. This is the great remedy of grace that was available to the Israelites to keep them from complete and utter failure in the times of the judges. And so, brothers and sisters of Christ, it is the great remedy of grace to keep us in our dark days as well. I've said recently, you know, again, we need to take the Word of God more seriously as an influence of our wills. These are dark days in which we live. I'm convinced this book is written to show us that there will always be dark days until the Lord comes. So the question is, is how are we going to live? Will we take in the Word of God? Will we receive it? Will we bow our wills to Him? So that is the setting of the book of Ruth. And so here's the next question. What is the purpose of it in that setting? What is the purpose of Ruth in this setting? Our second point is the hope we have in dark times. The story of Ruth reveals to us 
the great hope that we have in the darkest times that we face. Uh, in the days of Judges, there, when there was no king in Israel, we have seen that the people were generally uh, a, a terrible, rotting mess. Um, they were taken away by their own hearts in the, in the abounding of sin and temptation. Uh, and it just seems in the book, as you see it, the cyclical thing that they're just 